friend. We've been following this compass for some time. It is definitely leading us somewhere. But where? What have you found over there? A stone staircase. This looks promising. Hmm. Another door. Do you hear that? There's definitely something in there. We need something to pry this open. Nah, your powers have come a long way, friend. There appears to be a bond between you and the Necronomicon. More stairs. Let's do it. How far do you think it goes down? It's getting dark in here. We've been at this for half an hour. Wonder how much further to the bottom. Ah, here we are. Not much here. Hang on. What's that over there? It looks like a well. Wait, do you hear that? It appears we aren't alone. Friend, brace yourself! out of me, friend. Let's rest for a bit. There's a pedestal here with a pickaxe on it. I wonder if this is the last story. Let's check it out. The soft touches these things have. Written by John Keist. Narrated by Mike Ricard. That will be the police. They have come to arrest me for the murder of Follinsby Throckmorton III. Under normal circumstances, I would simply lead them to his body, for its present state would be the best attestation that no human hand had slain it. 
but that course of action would entail returning to the depths of the mine and would be neither prudent nor sane. Alas, at the end, I now know that that course will also not be necessary. Follinsby had been, if not a true friend, an acquaintance, perhaps at first a rival since our days at Cambridge. His lanky, oddly dressed form and shock of wild hair were immediately recognised by all students and faculty whenever he loped across Trinity Great Court. We Cambridge gentlemen, for some reason known only in antiquity, always call our quadrangles courts. He had excelled at rowing and at biology. His bizarre thesis on unknown species of South American fauna had caused some little stir on his return from the Amazon basin during Michaelmas term. But he had met all criticism head-on and had counted it brilliantly, gaining my grudging respect. We became drinking partners and eventually roommates. His ideas about evolution were, to put it mildly, most odd. Darwin would have rolled over on his beagle. Many a cold winter evening we would hunker down in our private room of overstuffed settees and overtall bookshelves to smoke the finest cigars and ponder the creation and mutation of life. There are things, he would whisper in his deep voice, that belong on no biological tree. Things that have come from elsewhere. Elsewhere being? I would attempt to draw him out. I cannot say. Nowhere local, in any sense of time or place. Creatures subservient to those called the Elder Gods, which are only hinted at in occult reference volumes, like the Kitab al-Azif, I would wave away such nonsense, corroborated only by tomes few had actually read or even seen. But Throckmorton would merely hunch closer to me, and his voice would become softer still. A month ago, I had evidence of this unearthly race. In these very hands, my friend. And I know that the specimens lost on my sea voyage back from Brazil were not the nearest examples of such creatures. The natives spoke of them as the things with the soft touch. They told of a light and a hum, and a shock in the air about the things, and although the ones I found were dead and withered, I have spoken to a half-dozen Englishmen who have encountered them right here, on native soil. Some of those open-minded explorers suffered grave consequences at such unhallowed meetings. Of one thing I will assure you, because I do not enjoy being mocked by the arrogant deans and ignorant graduate students of our fair university. If they are here, I will uncover them. I will bring them into the light, for it is in abysmal darkness that they exist. Although these sorts of conversations on windy nights affected me deeply, I never accepted the yarns as authentic. Still, I was certain that my friend did. He was much away from his college, and though his grades suffered little from his absences, his travels brought him no substantiation of the living things he sought. I eventually moved to the medical college and lost touch with Throckmorton, allowing his weird tales to fade along with my memory of him. I took first in class and settled after many years into a satisfactory practice in a small mining village in the southwest of England near the Welsh border. I married well and was happy for a decade. But oh, those ten years were behind me in an instant. 
Then my dear wife, who had come to be my all in all, died unexpectedly of a spring chill and left me childless and alone. My neighbours were kind and I threw myself into my work. Even so, all-encompassing sadness and the ever-present and monstrously oppressive sense of loss wrung all joy out of every waking moment. I often stared too long at the poisons in my lab and the scalpels upon my operating table. I even wandered the druggist Mr. Haverley's shop at the square a bit too frequently, pondering what chemicals his shells held that would make a final transition, rapid and relatively painless. When he and his assistant wife began to look askance at me during these musings, I eschewed further visits. And October came. The leaves shriveled into crisp brown obituary notices and lined the walkways. Pumpkin patches stained the rim of the cemetery, a myriad of orange hues, blending perfectly into the greys of the gravestones and the dull greens of the last swathes of culm grass. Biting chills swept in from the north and traced frosted lace patterns on the edges of my study window panes. As the trees dwindled to black sticks in the distance, I could finally see through the centres of these panes past the shops and past the cemetery to the abandoned mine just outside the town. It was one of the few excavations of great depth in this section of the country, but it had long ago ceased to yield any riches to the blackened hands that worked it. Other commerce had crept in to keep the village marginally thriving, but the townsfolk still refer to their home as a mining town. Today someone was coming toward this mining town from the mine, and as he neared the square, I felt ancient familiarity leap forth in my breast. I trained my telescope upon the figure and immediately realised two things. First, the gentleman was making a beeline for my own manor house, and... Second, the gentleman was my old roommate, Throckmorton. I laughed, excited at the prospect of someone to relieve my depression, and, dismissing my manservant Gibbs, met him personally at the door. Though I had no difficulty in recognising his broad frame, his elongated features and his wild shock of hair, the man had changed drastically in the many years that had shifted between us. My first thought was to contemplate whether I too had evolved to such a degree. His hair now had much white on the fringes, and his grey eyes had noticeably sunken into his dark, overhanging brow. The overall effect was to make one think he had seen bad things. His smile was warm, however, and his handshake firm and sincere. We retired at once to my study where I poured deep, strong drinks and lit eastern churrans. When we had settled in, he began speaking in a voice now soft, but still baritone. I have followed your career, my old friend, and also know of your recent and so great loss. Accept my heartiest sympathies. You have been in my thoughts. I had to confess I had utterly lost track of him. I am not surprised. I have not travelled much among the living. My life has taken me to many strange places on the continent and far beyond. I have made a few acquaintances and fewer friends, and the discoveries I have made, I have made alone, without the ability to offer the world proof in any physical form. He stared at me and wet his lips. Till now, 
Inexplicably, my spine grew cold. Whatever do you mean, Follinsby? Do you remember our talk of many decades past? The beings of Brazil, and nearer to home. The beings the natives called the things with the soft touch. I nodded cautiously. Well, they are much nearer to home as you reckon home, my dear doctor. I have positive proof that a bevy dwell at the bottom of your mineshaft. Don't scoff. It was doubly wonderful news that I had found, after many years of searching, an actual nest, and that you would be available to help convince the skeptics. What say you to an unearthly expedition? I was stunned. To the mine, I stammered. Why, it's off-limits. Sealed off. Not anymore, he smiled. Still very dangerous, I began, and his smile broadened. Indeed, I meant structurally. But if you are right, such an expedition would be foolhardy. I have taken every precaution. If we proceed carefully, we should be able to gather proof without encountering any of the living things. But I admit it would be folly to proceed alone. I thought it a sign from God that the man I most trust to have my back in that place lived less than a mile from it. I will beg your assistance if I must, but truly, I do not believe that will be necessary. I looked slowly around my bleak quarters, mused five seconds upon my existence and my miserable solitude, and shrugged. Begging would never become you. When do we start? We visited the village inn, the Cats of Ulfa, for a late supper. Follinsby told me it should be a simple matter to descend into the mine, find physical evidence of the creatures like what had been lost on his Brazil trip, and emerge unscathed to fame and vindication. He insisted on paying for our meal. He also insisted it mattered not when we began, as eternal darkness reigned in the tunnel. Come nightfall, to better avoid most travelling townsfolk, we picked our way through the silent cemetery, and shortly found ourselves at the moor of the mine. Follinsby had early removed all obstructions to the mouth of the earthworks, and had also somehow restored power to the ancient freight elevator inside. We lit electric torches and made our way to the lift gate. The ride to the bottom frightened me much more than the abstract thought of creatures in which I did not believe, for I knew the equipment had not been run in many years, and I knew the drop was prodigious. Amidst the creaking of old gears and the rattling of the metal car, we turned off our lamps and rode without speaking for many long minutes. The air cooled markedly and became oppressive. At length, we bumped upon the floor of the lower level and relit our lights. There was nothing to see. A narrow tunnel stretched far into the blackness. Throckmorton reached into a burlap bag he was carrying and removed two Colt revolvers. He handed one to me. Just in case, he said. Although their efficacy is doubtful. I put the gun in my belt and we began to walk down the inky path. The silence was total, the blackness complete, and the air unwholesome. I touched my own arm to ensure I was really here. This was madness. I suddenly wondered if my friend was in his right mind. I looked at my own weapon again just to make sure it was indeed loaded. Every chamber had a cartridge. I tried to make my mind go blank, 
just helping with an experiment, I repeated to myself. We walked for a very long time. All at once I saw in the sidelong glare of my lantern that all the colour had drained from Throckmorton's face and his eyes strained into the pitch. He grasped my shoulder and turned off his lamp. I followed suit. In an instant I felt a soft vibration all along my limbs and heard a far distant but deep humming. I had nothing in my experience to which I could compare either sensation. They continued for several minutes and then I realised I could just make out a spreading mist in the utter darkness. As eerie as the thrum and tingling were, being able to see this mist in the complete absence of light terrified me most of all. Gradually, tiny bright flecks began to dance in this ethereal fog. A dull green glow rose from its heart. I could not breathe. Something had brushed me with the lightest possible touch, as though a wisp of cobweb had danced across my throat. Then I felt a much stronger grasp. My companion pulled me into a side corridor that we had just come upon. He forced me into a crouched position and the mist floated up the main tunnel, emitting a type of spark as it went. Presently, it disappeared, and he whispered at my ear, Did you feel it? It could touch our emotions, know our thoughts. I had not gotten such a feeling. He went on, That was a type of sentinel for the soft touch things. They probably know we're here. From my travels, I've learned that sometimes they don't care if we invade their space. He paused. Sometimes they do. Come on. We moved back to the main corridor and presently relit our lamps. In front of us, the tunnel widened into a much larger chamber. Disused mining tools and rusted wagons lay scattered amongst the coal. The hum began again. We once more plunged ourselves into darkness. This time it took longer for the mist to surround us and begin to glow, but this time the tingling electric sensation permeated my whole frame, and strange pictures began to flash in my head as soft touches caressed me. I shivered in agony as I realised without doubt that everything Throckmorton had said was true. The things with the soft touch knew what we were. They understood about our lives in the light. Through my mind, they saw our towns, our factories, our wars, and they hated us. They hated us as tragic beings and for the threat we posed to them, trapped deep in the soft black earth. And one thing more, I could sense the mist swirled tighter about Follensby, and I knew that they knew he intended to expose them. Doing so was his life's obsession. His mad plans permeated all his thoughts, and they seethed with hellish, demonic hatred as they laid bare his soul. And then a final thing I knew. This glowing, pulsating, choking mist was not them, but they were now within it. Long, thin, solid, arm-like pieces whipped inside the fog, and glowing shards of red blinked and fixed their gaze on us. Something bulky was moving toward us, and the tingling became a thousand needles, stabbing and grinding and burning, 
I screamed and turned on my light. The fog diffused all and the bulk became a blur, except for the hand that leapt beyond the mist with the three black claws that did not look at all soft. Now it was Follensby's turn to scream. My light went out as I fumbled for the revolver and it slipped from my grasp and clattered to the floor. Without my medical training, in the depth of that midnight black shaft, lit only by livid flashes, and in the context of a terror that human minds will not accept, I would never have recognized, nor believed that the bloody lump which flew past my ear was a human lump. Throckmorton's body had been destroyed. The night-dwelling monsters were now feeding on his soul, devouring its essence to better understand the strengths and weaknesses of our species. I ran, screaming, along the tunnel. Their brief feast gave me the few seconds I needed to escape to the elevator. I knew within me, however, that the feast also made my plight more fraught with peril. Even as they fed, they were calculating the abilities of our race, and in particular, they were deciding if my knowledge of them was a danger to their existence. I would not attend the verdict. I ran in utter unthinking panic until my own lungs burnt as they sucked in the fetid air. I scrambled at length into the elevator. The lift rose jerkily and with agonizing slowness to the surface. I saw no pale gleam behind me, felt no electric tingling, heard no bass hum. Perhaps they were still tied to the depths and the darkness, destined to ponder my life and human existence in their eldritch oblivion. When the lift finally shuddered to a stop, I rushed headlong from the mine entrance and felt the cool embrace of the October evening. Even the waxing crescent moon and the few stars in the half-clouded sky made me squint after the pitch blackness of the elevator shaft. I staggered towards home, Heedless of my friend's blood and bowels which dripped from my torn, sooty jacket, I traversed the graveyard without incident. But the druggist's wife, Mrs. Haverley, shrieked hysterically, shook her head violently and ran off toward police headquarters when she encountered me at the square. At length, I reached my manor door where Gibbs caught me and escorted me inside. He determined that I was physically uninjured and then wordlessly helped me to a brandy and a bath. I sat in the dim light of the fire within my study, my drink in one hand and a crucifix in the other, staring into madness and eternity and awaiting the arrival of the authorities. Finally, the knock came. I rose and finished the drink, then looked down at the rosary and flung the beads from me. As I dismissed Gibbs from the foyer door to address the deputies, I alone beheld a shimmer burst from the far-off mine adit. The things, with the soft touch, had escaped the inky depths of the shaft. They had made that most feared determination of what should be done next. Follensby's consumed and rotted soul had guided them in my direction. They would traverse the suddenly foggy and gleaming cemetery and the village square, and be at my doorstep within ten minutes. My only hope was to run now, run swiftly, and to continue to run for all eternity. Come in, gentlemen, I smiled resignedly to the officers. Allow me to make some tea. 
and we can sort this all out in a quarter of an hour. You've been listening to the Night's End podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. The soft touches these things have was written by John Keist. For more from John, head to johnkeist.wordpress.com to check out more of his published works. This episode was narrated by Mike Ricard from the Stories of Strangeness podcast, where Mike and Zoe discuss all things on the topics of paranormal, folklore, cryptids, hauntings, and more. To check it out, head over to storiesofstrangeness.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Jimmy Horrors was performed by James Barnett. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. If you're a writer and think you have what it takes to spook the pants off our listeners, then we want you. We currently have submissions open for Halloween-themed stories for our Halloween special. There's only a couple more days to submit with the 15th of August in your time zone being the last day to submit. So get in quick. Head to nightsendpodcast.com. And as always, stay horrific, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>